Welcome back to Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine. Welcome back to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, along with Shane Mason, and we are two of the thousands of nurses on duty this very day. Our next guest was a nurse for almost 50 years when she retired in 2010. With us in the studio today is Elizabeth Pataki. I want to apologize to Elizabeth for mispronouncing her name. Elizabeth, if you're you're in my life for any period of time, (laughs) this will be the first of many apologies, I'm sure. When we say Elizabeth retired, well, we just mean she retired from her full-time job as a nurse. She now works hard for Medicare for All or single-payer health care. And for the Robin Hood tax, which is also known as the Wall Street transaction tax, this is for her children, grandchildren, and all who need health care. Elizabeth also served as a board member for California Nurses Association. Elizabeth, welcome to Nurse Talk. So nice to have you with us. I'm delighted to be here. So when and why did you become a nurse? Because that's quite fascinating, the years that you spent in El Dorado County. My family was European, and there were certain definite roles in families. So my brother, the oldest, got the doctor kit, Mm. and I, being the next one, got the nurse kit, Mm -hmm. this wonderful nurse kit. And my mother gave me this nurse doll in capes. Everybody had capes then. And I was so entranced with the cape, I think, as well as the nurse kit. (laughs) Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, (laughs) right. And mother wanted to be a nurse but didn't have the opportunity. So I decided, well, that's what I was going to do. It didn't occur to me, except vaguely in the back of my head, that maybe I could have also had a doctor kit. Yeah. Yes. But, you know, it was very clearly separated. So I was going to be the nurse. And it probably didn't occur to your family that you were going to end up having the nurse activist kit. They were probably just thinking nurse. Nurse. And look what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nurses were um, people who were kind and loving and didn't speak out and uh, were pretty much serving without questioning. Mm -hmm. I always had issues there. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Most of my life in nursing, I was in trouble one way or the other, also like you. (laughs) Good. So is anyone else in your family a nurse? Uh, No, I'm the only nurse in the family. My sister did some nursing care for a while, but no. They're more educators. So I'd like you to talk a little bit, because I read in your bio about your time in El Dorado County. And I have to say, when I was reading that, I was assuming El Dorado County was in Appalachia or somewhere (laughs) in the south. I was very surprised that this poorness, this level of... uh, abject poverty existed right here in in our sunny California. So tell us about that. Yeah, that was quite an experience. We had come from Oklahoma, where my husband had trained as a pilot, and came to uh, California and uh, looked at Sacramento. But at the time, it was big and hot. It was the middle of the summer. So we decided, "Uh uh-uh. So we went up to Placerville, and I got it. I was interviewed for public health, which I had done briefly before, and decided to take the country public health route. Now, there are two routes. There was the city route, Placerville Camino and Pollock Pines, if you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And I had the country route, which extended from uh, all the way down to El Dorado, over to Omo Ranch, which probably nobody knows about, and over to Georgetown. It was quite an experience. We had our own cars. We went to follow up on well babies, new mothers, uh, children's needs, communicable diseases, I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, The level of distress and poverty, uh, the living conditions, just to start with Omo Ranch, which is all the way over to the north. It was a logging town, and people didn't have cars. So people were stuck in this town, and there is a Tennessee Ernie company store 
and the things were exorbitant. Exorbitant. I mean, it doesn't sound like much now, but to pay 25 cents for an apple, they didn't have that kind of money. And the air was filled with dust. The children had asthma. There was all over. You couldn't get things. You hung your clothes out, and a woman would complain they couldn't get them clean. There was no health care. They couldn't get into the nearest city very easily. They had to carpool. They didn't get their children immunized because, again, it was a matter of how do you get there? Uh, We did our best to bring in services, get them to – we could not ourselves drive, try to get them to group and come in for birth control. It was a real need there. Bad backs everywhere, poor nutrition. Uh, It was heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Women. So this is back in the 60s, pre birth control, and certainly these folks didn't have access. So women having six and 12 children, not necessarily wanting to have six and 12 children, but there was no other alternative for them. I had a family outside of Placerville near Shingle Springs, and she had nine children with 10 on the way. Mm. And uh, again, the lack of education, the lack of access to birth control pills. And, And her youngest, her oldest daughter, rather, who was barely... 17, 16, I think, I also had to refer for birth control, but she was already pregnant. Right. And the standard of living and the homes they lived in and the, mm. uh, uh, in some areas, the lack of sanitation. You got re- I got re- people referred to me by the uh, schools department to follow up their, uh, some of the students, and you could not believe the living conditions. That's outrageous. Okay, yeah. so let's fast forward now um, to the 60s and 70s. Do you remember then if insurance actually worked and covered people's medical bills, or were you aware of the financial hardships to pose on patients back then? Well, I was aware that in, in, people who were in Medi-Cal had difficulty getting in, and, and the services were not always good. There, but there were a lot of clinics there. There was a difference. There were public health clinics and public clinics. Um, Health care at that time... You know, I, I, you just sort of took it for granted. If you had a good job, you had it. And if you didn't, then God help you. Um, it was fairly accessible through your employer, assuming you had a full-time job. But um, wasn't such an issue. And by and large, if I had a need, if I was pregnant and I needed, I needed prenatal or care, you could get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was. It was still at that point, healthcare service, even though there was the business entity, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And so how much did you make when you first started as a nurse? And I'm assuming that was a lot <laughs> different than when you retired. I started my first job in, um, that would have been Bloomington, Indiana, after I left New York. And I got paid a magnificent $2 an hour. Wow. And I was so ecstatic when after six months, I got a raise of five cents. <laughs> Oh, wow, so, they really did a Yeah, they really that did was, a lot. I was impressed by that. I had We probably were living on $300 a month and $10 for food. I mean, and you ate pretty simply, but it was... I have to say, my first, uh, well, first as an aide, I made $1.53 an hour to start. And then when I became got my LVN, and this is in the 70s, uh, I made $4.58 an hour. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. the, and that was considered uh, yeah. not a bad wage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in nursing at the time. Mm-hmm. And of course, back then you worked any shift, any time they could switch. There were no rules about what you could and couldn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, your employer did pretty much at will. So was it difficult to be a full-time nurse and raise your family at the same time? 
uh, it wasn't so hard at first with one child, but with subsequent children, it became increasingly difficult. I tried to take more time off between each birth, so I the child was at least four to six months old. But with eight-hour shifts then, mm-hmm. it worked in your favor as a parent, yeah, as a new mother. It did. Uh, you could, most hospitals did hire us part-time, and I pretty much worked part-time a couple days a week, two to three and on an eight-hour shift of weekend. I mean, my husband and I would see each other um, during the week sometime and wave at each other mm-hmm. on weekends yes. because he worked during the days, and I worked usually Saturday, Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So we really had this uh, long-distance relationship. Yeah. While living in the same house. Yeah, while living in the same house. Which I think is but, true today. But we survived. <laughs> yes. So do you think it's harder to work and raise a family now, or was it harder back then? I think it was easier then. I think that the cost of living was not so high. Uh, the housing was not so high. Uh, just all over, you were able to live more simply, and particularly if you lived in a college community or a apartment complex associated with the college. My husband was in school at the time. Um, you could live well, and there was a real feeling of solidarity. We were all together in it. We shared. There were this baby. We had babysitting co-ops. Everybody left their good stuff at the laundry, and everybody helped themselves. And then you knew when you left, you would do it. There was a lot more sharing, and there was a real sense of a community existing then. And I feel for parents now because most parents, because of the economy and the needs to also, the expectations that people have more now rather than we knew we got Salvation Army Modern and we're content to live with it until we yes. had more money. So that that's part of it, too. True. But, um, yeah, it's very difficult for young parents now, particularly True. the mothers. So let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, Patty wanted to talk about some fashion, our producer. So do you? <laughs> just, so did you wear whites, including the hat? And when did that change? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. You were so <laughs> proud of your whites, and you were proud of your cap. And when you were a junior, you got a thin stripe, and when you were yes. a senior, you got the thick stripe, and you pinned it out, and you had a crown. And of course, you got a little bald spot right there, at least thinning hair. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you wore white, and it was very impractical. And but there was less care was slower then. By yeah. that, I mean we had more time. We weren't rushing from room to room. We had more time to spend. And you didn't have all the isolation cases, so you didn't have to keep taking it off and putting it back yeah. on. So, yeah, you were a very pair of your whites. And I can remember the 70s with mini skirts. Oh, yes. Even the nurses wore mini skirts. Oh, I mean, I, I looked remember. at it. I got a costume out the other day. I put it in the costume box, my my dress. I was shocked that I wear that. You had to bend down because you really didn't want to turn your back on the patients when you're getting a drink of water from the fountain. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yes. And they say today's the golden era of nursing. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like it was the 70s. <laughs> yeah, to me. We, we. And they took out those white hats in the 80s around infection control. Yes. I will tell you that I could not, because my hair is baby fine, mm-hmm. I could not wear the cap. It would just fall off. There was no clips available. <coughs> and in nursing school, they suggested I could use a chin strap. Oh, oh. I was like, no, thank you. I'll put it on for the picture, and that's the last time I will will wear it. So did you own a pair of clogs, uh, clogs or did you retire before those became kind of the standard shoe for nurses? No, I never wore clogs because yeah. I like something that supports my ankles. Yeah. I move fast, and I just like a sturdier shoe yeah. that... Uh, 
gives me some support, and I can run down the halls quicker with. Yeah, with your cape flying behind you. Yes, right. Oh, I never got my cape, by the way. They were so expensive that I couldn't get it. And then then they kind of went out of style, so... So let's fast forward today and tell us, why are you an advocate and activist for Medicare for All? Um, To me, the basic question is that health care is a human need. It's one of the most basic of human needs. You have to be born into a safe environment. You have to have enough food, education, and you must have health care. It is a basic human need. It is a basic human right. And I cannot imagine a civilized society in which people do not have health care. What we have now is health insurance that is vastly different. Medicare for all or um, universal um, Medi-Cal, Medicare is, is an, a need for all people. Yeah. And I know, too, that you do a lot of advocacy for the what they call the Robin Hood tax or the Wall Street transaction tax. And how was that brought to your attention? Well, it is the whole inequity. If you can't afford to get good health care, your health care can break you. Do you realize that the the bankruptcies are mostly occurring with people that do have health care? And that all goes back to the whole issue of salaries and taxation and equity. And, I mean, our country is built on equity um, and, and the rights the of lack people. Thereof. Well... Yes, it was at one time, indeed. That's why my parents came here. But uh, it's just fair. It's fair that everyone pays equitably taxes. And the amount that we pay, I mean, like look at Buffett. He pays less percentage than his secretary. We pay inordinately more. And the taxation of businesses of Wall Street particularly and the derivatives has gone down, 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 where more and more of the middle class is carrying the country and we're going broke. Yes, because the middle class has been shrinking. So this Robin Hood tax um, is successful in Germany, which has one of the best economies in the world. The EU is using it to mm-hmm. great success. And this is how we would fund things like Medicare for all and health care and crumbling infrastructure mm-hmm. and all the other things that are plaguing this country that we don't have the money to do. What do you think the resistance is to that, Elizabeth? Well, I think a part of it is most people don't understand. They don't know we had financial tracks and at financial tax at one time, and it was dropped, unfortunately. So there's this lack of awareness. But more than that, of course, there's resistance. We are becoming a corporate oligarchy. We are no longer directly a democracy. Um, more and more, the powers that be have money. They're international. They're global. They are suppressing it. The the press has more and more suppressed accurate information. They, the television that people watches gives all sorts of misinformation. And people simply are either those of us who are activists have to shout to be heard, have to get out in numbers, and the rest simply don't know. But they want an oligarchy. They want this separation of the very, very wealthy and the rest of us working, and frankly, until we die. Mm, absolutely. What was the most rewarding part of your job, Elizabeth? Uh, as an activist or as a nurse? Either both. way, both. <laughs> I think the most rewarding part was just being with people, caring for them, listening to them, understanding them, being somehow in a position where I could uh, nurture or comfort or now as an activist, bring information, try to organize, try to get people to understand what's needed and uh, make it to give them hope 
my children, people out there are very dour. Uh, there's much feeling of, of hopelessness that you can't buck the mm. system. Mm. And it's our position, those of us who retire, to say, yes, you can, and this is how you do it. Give them a way to do it. Which is why I work with CARA for elderly people, to educate that's a growing number of voters who do yeah. get out there and vote. Which is an important part. Mm -hmm. So, Elizabeth, I teach at the University of San Francisco School of Nursing and Health Professions. If you came to my class, what advice would you give my students? I would say they need to protect their profession. They need to understand the forces that are undermining it. They need to understand what happens when we become technically capable and we lose the human touch. Nursing is a healing profession. We need to touch the patients, have time with them, sit down with them, listen to it. And more and more, it's about capturing costs and getting things covered so you're not sued. And I'm afraid we're going to lose our soul. What are we becoming when we can no longer touch, when we can no longer comfort, when it's got to be all down there in the computer? When I'm looking at the computer, that's why I left in 1910. Because of the computer? Because of the computerized charting. The, I'm looking at the computer and having to capture, there's the patient in the bed. They hate it. I hated it. Mm -hmm. And it's too bad because you, I think it's easier to regain something that you've lost than to start something anew. And the students that are coming through now... They're not, a, they're not aware that things have changed. Mm -hmm. So they don't even have the memory. It's not yes. even a relic for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the institutional memory is there, the hands-on. Yeah. It's, it's sad because um, when we lose that, what, what, what are we? Yes. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we close a little no, bit? No, just uh, keep your courage. Keep your hopes Remember you're a nurse, you're a healer. Work together, organize, support each other. Don't let a nurse be downtrodden. Stand together and fight for your profession. We've been talking with RN and activist Elizabeth Pataki. You're listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter really is the best medicine. For more information about today's show, visit nnu.org. Mm -hmm.